Take your Bibles if you have them. And just letting you know the main part of the story today will not be on the screen as it normally is in um, the Scripture. We will have Scripture on the screen, but not the main part. And so you're going to have to open your Bible or your app on your phone or there should be a Bible in front of you, around you, um, if you need one. And that, if you've got one of those, turn to Judges chapter 6 in the Old Testament, near the beginning of the Bible. Um, right after the first five books, there's Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And so it is seventh there in line, Judges chapter 6. Now I want to explain to you where we're going over the next few weeks because God really didn't clarify that for me until this weekend. Um, just kind of let you know, I generally pray through and plan what I feel God is calling me to speak on and to preach about weeks, months in advance. And I had a series of messages planned for this particular moment starting this week since sometime in February. And as I got closer to this time and thinking about it, I just felt the Lord saying, you're going to go in a different direction. And so I began to pray through that and pray through what God was going to do and how we're going to walk over the next few weeks through Scripture. And I only got two things from him over the last several weeks. And that was simply this, that we would be looking at over the next few weeks how to be prepared by and used by God for his glory. How we as people, as a church, can be used by God to accomplish great things. And that we would start that by discussing Gideon. And so that's all I had for the last month, month and a half, and didn't have any other direction about next week or the weeks ahead or what was happening. And on Thursday of this week, we did an important life milestone. We moved my oldest into college. And so as we dropped Eli off at Union and completely unemotional, as you can imagine, no, none of that happening As we dropped him off at Union, one of the things they do at Union is that you move him in through most of the day, then you have uh, a family picnic, and then a parent meeting, a parent time where they kind of talk through some some tips for you that are dropping off or whatever, and then you do a worship service together as an entire community, including your children. And so we, uh, I was in the parent meeting, and in the parent meeting, uh, the guy that is the dean of the School of Theology and Missions, a, a man that I consider a friend, and... Um, somebody that I've worked with and worked as an adjunct professor in that school, Dr. Ray Van Ness, was talking about the fact that they have, they have moved two to college that are now out of college. They have two currently in college, and they have two that will be going to college in the next four years. That's six, in case you're counting real quick. And he said the verse that they always claimed comes out of Psalm 127. And so I want to share Psalm 127 with you because it... It, it kind of gives an understanding of where we're going in the next few weeks. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleeps to the one he loves. Now, 
just for that part. That's not really where, they, I don't think Dr. Van Ness even read that, but that's the first part of chapter 127. And God used it as I was reading it, as he was reading the, the second half of the, of the chapter. I was reading the first half. And God was saying that what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is that as we move forward as a church, as we think about what the future is for our church, and we're going to talk about in the next few weeks and even today a little bit, the reality that there have been changes and things that are happening and moving around our church. And as we think about the future and what is happening, unless the Lord builds it, we build in vain. That Y'all aren't an amen in group, but that's an amen place. That no matter what we do, no matter what programs we have, no matter what worship service we do, no matter what kind of music we sing, no matter what kind of missions work we're doing, no matter what kind of service we're giving to one another or teaching that is happening, unless it is built on the foundation of the Lord and at the Lord's direction, then we are working in vain. You know what it means to work in vain, right? It means that you're doing nothing, really. You're moving, you're acting, but nothing is resulting from it. And then this is the part they talked about, and I want to kind of transition it for a minute, but said sons or sons and daughters or children are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. And this is the image that God put into my mind. It reminded me of something else we'll talk about in just a moment. Now, the point they made on Thursday night is that you have been with these children for 18 years. They are arrows, and arrows are useless unless they're released. And you have trained them to do what God has called you to do. So in this moment, trust that the Lord is going to use them for good. But that imagery of arrows being shot by God reminded me of this picture. This is 2013. I was not here in this picture, but I was at the beginning of what this picture is. So this is a conference that the first year that ever happened was one of the most impactful conferences in my life. God spoke to me in a direct way at this conference in 1997. By 2013, it had moved from the 2,000 people in a ballroom in an Austin hotel, hotel in Austin, Texas, to the Georgia Dome where 60,000 college students are gathered. So that picture, and I know it's hard to see, it's from the rafters of the Georgia Dome, And there are 60,000 college students worshiping the Lord. And when they put this picture up on social media, I don't even think Instagram was a thing back then. They put it up on Twitter. A pastor who was at that first conference in 1997, John Piper, all his comment was about this group of 60,000 people was arrows in the hand of God. The idea is that it is mind-boggling to think of what God could do through people who are willing to be used for His glory. And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to talk about is being arrows in the hands of God. 
What's interesting is when I remembered that particular quote, I remembered another sermon that came a few years later where this drawing was made as a part of it. And this is from the same kind of quote from that arrows in the hand of God. And we'll talk about this picture in the weeks ahead, not so much today. But I just felt the Lord saying that it is time to think through these issues as a church. And we're going to start today talking about the story of Gideon. Judges chapter 6 sets the scene for us. We did Judges not too long ago, a little over a year. Well, I guess it's been longer than that. It's been a while now. We talked about Judges and we talked about the idea that Judges is a book that tells the story of a cycle of despair and destruction that way God would hear the cry of his people that were in despair. He would deliver them with the judge. The judge would set them on the right path. They would live for the Lord. They would claim the promises of God. They would begin to sin and fall away from the Lord. They would get themselves captured by a foreign power. They would cry out to God. God would send a deliverer as a judge. They would receive the reward and the benefit of being saved. They would begin to sin and walk away from the Lord. God would have a foreign enemy come and take them captive. They would be despised in the midst of that. They would call out to God. A judge would come. And this goes on again and again and again and again throughout the entire book of Judges. And each time it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. As one of my kids used to say, worser and worser. And so when we get to Judges chapter 6, we're at the beginning of one of these downward cycles, or in the midst of it, I guess you will, because Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1, tells us that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, this is a time frame, if you remember, we talked about Judges before, that what they say about them is that everyone did what was right in their own eye. A scary idea of people doing whatever they felt was good, whatever they felt was right, whatever felt good to them, they did it. It sounds increasingly like the time in which we live. And as they did what was right in their own eyes, that was often different than what God would say. And it says, so the Lord handed them over to Midian for seven years and Midian oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites were hiding One description, by the way, of what the Midianites did here says that they covered them as the sand covers the earth. That they overwhelmed them. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east came and attacked them. They camped against them and destroyed their produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat. Verse 6 tells us they became poverty-stricken. And they cried out to the Lord. And so the situation that we find ourselves in the midst of this is a very difficult situation. They have been overtaken by a foreign government. They are no longer able to do the things that they want to do in freedom. Their crops are getting ransacked by people around them. They're getting destroyed or stolen. And every time they try to do something, they have nothing to eat. And so they're dependent completely upon a foreign power. And that foreign power is not allowing them to be able to have all that they need. And so they are poor pitiful they're hungry they're upset they can't figure out why all of this is happening and they just need to be rescued it tells us that they are even hunkered down they're in 
caves and mountains and strongholds. They're just simply trying to protect what they have and keep what they've got. And they are attempting to just stay safe. And into that story comes our judge, the hero of the story, from a human perspective, and that is Gideon. Verse 11 of chapter 6 says, And the angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Orphrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So I want you to get the picture here. They are oppressed people, poverty-stricken, terrible things have happened. Gideon can't even do his work out in the open. It says that he has taken it under into the basement, into the wine press, where nobody can see it. He is fearful for his life. He is fearful for things being taken from him. He is cowering in the basement of the strongest building he knows. A visual image for you is that he is doing his work Locked up in whatever room you use when the tornadoes are coming. Y'all know that moment, the tornado warning, right? Get to your safe place. Y'all are looking at me like y'all don't live in a place that has tornado warnings. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? For us, it's the storage room down on the bottom floor. And man, that is a lovely place to be with our entire family and two pets. Love it. He is there threshing wheat, hiding out fearful for his life when an angel appears to him. Verse 12 says, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Now a little bit later in this discussion, Gideon says, I think you've got the wrong guy. Again, he's cowering in the basement, threshing the wheat. And he says, of all the tribes of Israel, I'm a part of Manasseh, which is the worst tribe. Of all of the families in Manasseh, my family is the least respected and the poorest. And of my entire family, I'm the runt. I am literally the least of the least. I cannot be used by you, God. You have the wrong guy. Here's what I love. God basically says to him, Gideon, you are exactly who I need because you are small enough and weak enough for me to use you. While I was researching Gideon over the last couple of weeks, I came across a quote of a guy named Adrian Rogers, a great preacher of the 20th century, pastored Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis for many years. And he said, I have seen... Many men that were too big for God to use. But I have never seen one too small for God to use. Many men whose pride and arrogance and abilities have prevented them from being used by God. But never someone that is too humble to be used. You see, God saw in Gideon not what he was, but what he could become through God using him. And what we have to realize is God is not out there looking for the most earthly qualified people to do his job. 
whatever job, whatever ministry, whatever task he has, he's not looking at our resumes and going, whoo, look at that ACT score. Man, look at that. Did you see his proficiency on his last job interview? Wow. He's looking for people that are willing to be used by him. And if you think I'm somebody that God could never use, congratulations, you are exactly where God wants you. And don't you ever insult God by saying he cannot use you. I want to apply that to a church. Any church that gets to the point that they think they are beyond the use of God have insulted the sovereignty and the power of God. So what was it about Gideon that allowed God to use him in a mighty way? Spoiler alert, Gideon delivers the Israelites. So what was it about him? Well, a couple of things and then we'll be done today. First of all, Gideon was captured by a vision of the living God. And God uses people that are captured by that vision. Verse 12 says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And Gideon said to him, and I love this from Gideon. Gideon's like, I hear you, Lord. I got a question for you. If the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. And he says basically, Lord, I understand. I hear I hear about all the good things. I hear about the Red Sea parting. And for us, we hear the biblical stories of the past, of God's deliverance, even of Gideon. But Lord, why am I where I am now? Why are we here except that you have abandoned us? What does it mean that you are with us? And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. Now here's what I want us to understand from this passage. What we know is that this is the moment that Gideon begins his journey towards becoming the one who would deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And what was it that started that journey? It was a fresh vision, a renewal of his understanding of who God is and what God intended to do. So many people live a life of quiet desperation as Christians who are trying to do what they think is right, what they want to be right, and they have not seen God move in a mighty way. And part of that is is because we become a people of do's and don'ts instead of people of God who are seeking Him daily in order to have a real experience with Him that leads us on and encourages us and emboldens us to do what God has called us to do. As a church, we need a fresh vision of what God is doing in our midst and who he is. As individuals, you need a fresh vision of who God is and what he is doing in your life. And the good news about that is God is always willing and ready for those that come to him with a heart that is ready and contrite and comes to him wanting and seeking him. He is not far from us. The God that we serve is the same God of Gideon. 
He is still on the throne. He is still capable of miracles. He is still capable of doing unbelievable works. He is not tired. He is not sick. He is not old. He is God Almighty, sovereign over all things, ready to use us to do things that are unimaginable to our minds at this moment. And even in the difficult moment, both nationally, both with the virus, with all the things that have happened in our country over the last couple of years, with international, all the things that are happening around us, and within our church, with things that have happened over the last couple of years, nothing can prevent God from doing the work that God intends to do. We, if we want to be a part of it, need a fresh vision of who He is and what He is doing. Gideon here says, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? I don't understand. Why are we this? And God says, just know this. I am going to use you because I am a great God to deliver you from the Midianites. This is what I'm doing and I want you on board. And the moment we think that God is done with us or God cannot use us, we are no longer seeking the God who is alive and working. Now here's the reality. If a man builds a house without the Lord, he builds it what? In vain. And so if we're doing it without seeking the Lord, if we're doing it without running after Him, then we are working in vain. But the moment we get a new vision of who God is and what He desires for us to do, then we run with Him. Somebody says, well, you know what? If God would appear to me in a vision in my bedroom, I'd be willing to listen to. But the truth is this. We have more than Gideon ever had because we have so much more of God's revealed character and wisdom and purpose and plan because we are on the other side of the New Testament. And we have seen the Father because we have seen Jesus And Jesus gives us a picture of who God is and then gives us the mission for which we are called to be a part, that we are to go into all the earth. And as we go, we are to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that He taught to obey and that He would be with us to the ends of the earth. We have the Word of God. We have Jesus as our Savior and we have the promised Holy Spirit. We have our marching orders. God uses those that have a new vision of Him. Secondly, God uses and emboldens the courageous. Chapter 6, verse 12, He calls Him Valiant One. And that's when Gideon goes, wait, wait, wait a minute, that's not who I am. And again, that is God looking at Him and declaring who He will be. We see in another moment where God takes away those that would not be fit for service because of their fear. Look over in chapter 7. So you're in chapter 6 of Judges. Go to chapter 7. I know it's early for math for some of you. That is plus 1. And chapter 7, verse 2. So they start to get the army together. And the Lord says to Gideon what no commander ever says to his leadership. You have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. 
Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. The end of verse 3. So 22,000, say thousand. 22,000 of the troops turned back. You know what that's called? A stampede is what that's called. And 10,000 remained. Now, if you're Gideon, it's like, man, I could have used those 22,000, but at least I got 10. I think it's interesting what the determining factor is. Are you scared? Then don't go. God basically was also telling Gideon, listen, it's not for me about the quantity as much as it is about the quality of what I have. Can I just tell you that even after dwindling numbers from COVID and other circumstances and that today as we gather, it's a good good group in here today, but I can tell you this for sure. I know that there are more people in this room today than God needs to turn around this city. God has started with a much smaller number and changed the world. And so, yes, as a church... Do we want to grow? Yes, absolutely. We want to see new people come to faith. We want to see all of that. But we want to grow on a house that the Lord has built and the Lord is using. One of the, another great preacher of the 20th century was a guy named Vance Havner. And in 1954, I wasn't around back then, but I've heard stories. In 1954, the Southern Baptist Convention did a push for a million baptisms in 54. And they called it a million more in 54. Wanted to add to their number a million more. And Vance Havner, who had kind of a nasally voice I won't try to imitate, said, he said, I'm all for more numbers, but if we get a million more like some we got, we're sunk. (laughs) Like, we want what God intends. And when they get there to the army, he says, if you're scared at all, you need to go. Why? Because fear is infectious. Think about how easy it is to become scared of something. To become afraid. And if you've got people encouraging you in that fear, how much easier it is to go down that path. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. This is when they're talking about how they should fight. The officers will continue to address the army and say, Is there any man who is afraid or cowardly? Let him leave and return home. Why? So that his brothers won't lose heart as he did. Because fear is infectious. And as a church and as individuals, we have to be courageous in moving forward with what God intends. We do that because we know that God has not, as 2 Timothy 1.7 said, gives us, has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of might. God tells us that we have the power that comes from Him, that we have His presence in the midst of that. He enriches us with His love. He is for us, and we do not have to doubt that. Gideon says, God, if you're for us, why is this happening? Scripture reminds us again and again and again that God is for us. And if he is for us, who can stand against us? The answer to that is no one, nothing. 
when I was growing up, my brother uh, is five and a half years older than me, and we lived for the first few years of my life in a neighborhood. We lived in a neighborhood that we go almost every afternoon to play some sport, football, baseball, with the neighborhood kids. We had uh, one, of, one of the guys, and I've told you all this, I've been here 14 years, so you've heard most of it, all right? But um, we had a guy on our road that wrestled part-time in Memphis. Let me, excuse me, wrestled part-time in Memphis on their local wrestling show. And so we had a big fascination with that. We built an actual wrestling ring and so uh, in our neighborhood. Um, and so we would, every afternoon, was some sort of activity with the guys. But to get to wherever we were going, down to the Petty House or the Williams House or we are going to the Webs or wherever it was, that everywhere we went, we had to walk past houses with dogs. And I'm not talking about poodles in cages. I'm talking about Dobermans and Rottweilers, some on chains, some not. And here's the thing. When I would walk those paths by myself, it was a step-by-step of fear. But when my brother, who was five and a half years older than me, walked with me, I didn't worry about a thing. Because he was with me. And he was stronger than I was. And I knew he was for me. And that's the way we live our lives with the Lord. Now we may walk through some really difficult spots and we may have some really hard times, but we walk knowing that Jesus promised, Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. He sent the Spirit to be with us. We can go confidently because God is more powerful than anything in the world. He loves us and He is for us. And so there is no reason for us not to be courageous. God uses and emboldens the courageous. He also uses the vigilant. In chapter 7, verse 3, when he announces to the troops that there are too many and they turn back, verse 4 then tells us this, The Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many troops. We don't have Gideon's immediate response there, but as I probably said, like, say what? So take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And if I say to you, this one can go, he can't. But if I say this one, he can't. So he brought the troops down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. And the numbers of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was 300. And all the rest of the troops knelt to drink. And the Lord said, I'll deliver you with the 300 men who lapped. There's lots of discussion about what is important here, what's not important here. Is this just God arbitrarily picking or what's happening? And I I come down to this point. I think there is something about these men that God's going to use and that God's looking for some specific characteristics. And one of those is vigilance. And I just want you to think about the two differences here between the two groups. One went down and stuck their face in the water and began to drink. Now, I want you to think about how do you have to get down in order to drink out of that water? you got to be out on all fours. Your head is in the water, right? It's hard to think of an army being in a more vulnerable position than that. The ones that are lapping, in essence, are pulling to their mouth Their heads are able to stay up and they're able to keep watch. 
And I don't want to make too big of a point out of that because I think the main purpose of this passage is that God weeded it down from 32,000 to 300. But there is something here about making sure you are aware of all that is happening around you and you're always on your guard because the moment God begins to use you, the moment God begins to use this church for His glory and for the spread of His kingdom, the enemy is going to attack. One of the lessons that I think we pull from the Seven Churches series we finished a couple of weeks ago is this, that you always have to be aware of how much the culture around you is influencing the church inside. And that we are to be thermostats that turn up and turn down the temperature around us and affect the environment in which we go instead of just being thermometers that tell what the rest of the world is doing. God is looking for people that are willing to keep watch over their lives. One pastor has said that when you look at failures, you can almost trace it to an undetected weakness in the life of the person, an unexpected temptation that comes along, and a life that was unprotected from that sin. And just the reality that nothing puts us as far out of the reach of the enemy as old-fashioned holiness and living for the Lord. And here's the last thing we see in this passage. That God wants us to have a fresh vision of who He is and what He wants us to do. That God emboldens and uses those that are courageous, courageous and that God uses those that are on, always looking, vigilant, looking around. The last thing is this. God uses those who understand the origin of our victory. One of my favorite moments in the midst of all of this is when the Lord tells Gideon that I need you to go down to the camp. There's lots of great moments. There's the moment of the calling and Gideon's reluctance. There's the moment of the actual destruction of what happens. There's the the uh, sign of the fleece and all that that means. The selection of the army, the dwindling army. But this is the moment that I love the most, perhaps. It's in chapter 7, verse 9. It says, That night the Lord said, Get up and attack the camp, for I have handed over to you. But if you're afraid to attack the camp, go down with Pura, your servant. So he says, I just want you to know that this is not because of you, but where this comes from. Verse 11. Listen to what they say, and then you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So Gideon went down with Purah's servant to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. So he gets there, he sneaks down there, he's outside of a tent, he hears a guy saying, Listen, I had this dream, and this dream I had a loaf of barley bread come tumbling down to the Midianite, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. You're thinking, well, that's not really encouraging, right? They can be defeated, that's great. But this his friend interpreted it for him, verse 14. This dream is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. This is what God wants us to understand. He calls us, says, listen, I need you a fresh vision of what's happening, of who I am, what the mission is. 
I need you to be courageous. I need you to be vigilant. But you need to understand this. The victory is not ultimately determined by your strength or who you are. I am the one who brings the victory. By the way, he talks about barley bread there. In their day and time, not that barley's a lot better today, but it was the coarsest, cheapest, least desirable bread. And the point that he's making is God uses the absolute most ordinary things in the world to do the most extraordinary things for his kingdom. In fact, in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, he tells us, he says, listen, not all of you were good. In fact, some of you were not very skilled, not very wise, not what the world would consider good things. And yet I'm using that because I want the world to know how great I am so that they might come to me. We are nothing apart from God. If a man builds a house and the Lord is not in it, he builds in vain. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about being arrows in the hands of God. And this is what I love about that imagery is. That arrows go wherever they're shot and they have no control over where they fly. They're just willing to be used for whatever God intends for them to be used. And as we think about what God has for us as individuals and as a church in the weeks and the months and the years ahead, my desire is to be nothing more than an arrow that is shot for the glory of His name and for the sake of His kingdom. I don't know where you fit into that picture. I don't know where you came in today feeling or thinking or where God is moving in your life. But my prayer is that you would simply surrender to the plan that God has for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be clear today in the calling that you have on us as individuals and as a church. Lord, even in those places where we feel weak and vulnerable, you would remind us that those are the places that you can use in a mighty way. Lord, help us to be people that seek you and your truth above all else and that we would live a life towards the mission that you have laid out for us for the glory of your name and the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.